everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Michael Goldstein, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Um, you have just written uh, a piece recently, and we wanted I wanted to get you on and talk about that. Um, I think the title, how I have it saved at least, is How Bitcoin Obsoletes Inflation and Promotes Human Flourishing. Um, I guess just to start, what was your your inspiration for writing this and, and how do you uh, summarize it for someone that hasn't read it yet? Yeah, so that's actually the uh, subtitle. The official mm. title is Toward a Node World Order. Um, so just trying to to imagine um, how the world will change as we start to go towards a um, global decentralized money that's based on you know independent verification. And uh, the prime inspiration was because uh, Alex Svetsky um, has a publication called the Bitcoin Times, and he was doing an uh, Austrian economics edition, and he asked me to partake and. I said yes. <laughs> so that was the uh -huh. the first inspiration. Um, I actually haven't done a bit of writing. People people know me more from my publishing than my writing. Um, and I'm quickly learning that uh, I should be doing more writing. Um, when I went to write something, you know, I I, I wanted to 
you know, I, I didn't want to say exactly the same thing um, I say over and over, although this article does bring together a lot of the things that, you know, I talk about as as it is, uh, but kind of put it in a in a new context. And um, one of the main inspirations uh, for this article was just thinking on a an essay by Hans Hermann Hoppe that I think is is very underrated. Um, a lot of people know him for um, maybe Democracy, the God that Failed, or Economic Science and the Austrian Method. But he has, you know, quite the um, quite quite the uh, body of work. I, I think you you've been recently talking to Stefan Kinsella about his um, first book, mm-hmm. um, which is which is also fantastic. But he had an essay called um, Banking Nation States. Uh, you know, I'm in a blank because it's it's a tough title. It's a handful. Uh, uh, Banking Nation States and International Politics, A Sociological Reconstruction of the Present Economic Order. And in that essay, he describes how the state monopolizes um, money, um, why that's sort of the the natural thing for um, the, the state as an institution to do, and um, what that means for kind of a broader... Um, international order, and you know what what that means uh, ultimately as sort of a um, goal for um, you know <laughs> what is it that we're trying to fix here, mm-hmm. um, and and ultimately it's this this uh, global fiat order um, which has taken its tolls on us individually um, as a society and so on and. It's, it's a very long essay. I, I barely touch on, you know, half the stuff that's in there. Um, but it was making me think about, you know, what does that mean in a Bitcoin context where I think we really are um, fixing the problems that he describes and doing it not just in a way of saying, um, oh, well, if we all went back on the gold standard, wouldn't that be great? But actually um, producing a new monetary network that is empirically actually making headway and then you know theoretically has uh, many reasons why that would continue to be um and also you know as we'll, we'll get into um i'm sure uh how the very nature of that network kind of has a feedback on itself in terms of its capacity um to grow and maintain um protection from uh, those who would want to subvert it because of, you know, the nature of um, the state and its desires to monopolize. Um, so I kind of, uh, you know, was was riffing off that and uh, it quickly became, I think, about 8,000 words um, and covers a lot of ground. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of a, a good way to pull together a lot of my ideas about why Bitcoin is f- fundamentally superior as a money and what that means for society. Brilliantly said, and yeah, really glad you spent the time writing it. It is a long piece, like you said, 8,000 words, but just fantastic content, succinct, um, poignant, really good stuff. Um, And I guess one of the underlying or perhaps the underlying theme here, uh, and perhaps this was Mises that said that if, if history could teach us one thing, it's that private property and civilization are inexorably bound, something like that. Um, and I guess what we're talking about with Bitcoin is a a form of individual private property that's more resilient to aggression, perhaps. And that that seems to support a lot of the the arguments that that Hoppe 
uh, is making. And um, so I guess what I'd like to do is just maybe jump in by reading an excerpt and I'll, I'll go ahead and warn the audience. We're going to be blending because oftentimes you'll cite or, or you'll quote um, something from, from Hoppe or, or other authors and, uh, and then write some, some commentary after that. So what I'm going to do, actually the first excerpt here is just a blend of both of those things. Um, so with that, I'll just read this to kind of get us rolling. Uh, starting with something Hoppe wrote, and then we shift into what you wrote. He wrote that state supportive public opinion must counterbalance the resistance of victimized property owners such that active resistance appears futile. And the goal of the state then, and of every state employee who wants to contribute towards securing and improving his own position within the state is and must be that of maximizing exploitatively acquired wealth and income by producing favorable public opinion and creating legitimacy. And now we go into your writing. You wrote that because of this, the state has a natural desire to restrict competition that can threaten a state's legitimacy as well as redistribution of some of its coercively appropriated wealth to people outside the state apparatus and thereby attempting to corrupt them into assuming state supportive roles. The state first targets monopolization of law and security as a means to perform and enforce expropriation despite its aggression against natural property rights. Another key target is education so as to inculcate ideological support for the state and its actions among the citizenry. So that's a, it's a bit of a dense, uh, and again, uh, especially Hoppe's writing is very dense, but very informative. Um, but I wanted to, to ask you to kind of expound upon this a little bit and maybe talk about the role or the importance of ideology in the fabrication of these social constructs, right? Money is one of them. Um, but obviously the state itself needs ideological support for, for its very existence as well. Um, so maybe you could just expand upon this, this particular excerpt a little bit in that, that perspective of, of ideology. So Hoppe likes to start almost all of his, uh, essays and lectures and all of that by kind of redefining the state so that we can all kind of mm -hmm. get on, on, you know, common ground to work through this. And his general uh, definition, which I hope I get correct, is effectively that is the uh, territorial monopoly of ultimate decision making. Um, so that, uh, you know, any any possible dispute there, the, the, the state is an institution that uh, gets to um, decide on that dispute, um, including if it's, you know, including disputes that include itself. Um, and this also uh, includes the um, the ability to tax, um, which is effectively expropriating wealth. So uh, a key thing about the state is that, um, you know, all of its uh, it's not it's not acting in a free market where it is um, performing. Uh, tasks uh, and producing goods and services that bring people value and therefore create wealth. Instead, it's it's wholly supported by various forms of expropriation. Now, all of these things, if uh, you did the things that the state does, um, you would probably, you know, rightfully be criminally punished. Um, however, when the state does it, um, we treat it as a uh, unique situation. Um, and so. 
when we look at it, we we look at all these things that they that that are done by the state, you know, uh, taking your money um, and, uh, you know, making making all sorts of things um, uh, free and consensual activities between people. Um making them illegal, um, such that, you know, uh, from, from everything, I mean, people, people want to think about the, uh, maybe, uh, uh, naughty type things, but there's also, you know, uh, the, the, you know, Ill- illegality in many States of, uh, you know, just being able to sell raw milk and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So yeah. it gets everywhere. Point is, is the state is engaging in these expropriative, um, and exploitative activities to perpetuate itself. Um, and because of the fact that it's having to engage in activities that uh, are not valid for other people to engage in, you need to create uh, a, a legitimacy. You need to um, you need to make people think that it's okay to do this in this this special situation. And it's like, uh, and so, this is basically what he's describing is is uh, the natural tendency of the state to start um, restricting competition so that uh, it it can retain this kind of um, special status of an organization that is allowed to do these things that no one else is allowed to. So when they, you know, uh, uh, monopolize law and security, well, if there was someone else who is just a, a someone who is a a wise person who's good at uh, you know handling disputes, and everyone just goes to them, well, then it seems a little bit ridiculous for the state to just steal money to pay for their um, legal services um, when you can get better ones for for a better price and more efficiency, et cetera, elsewhere. And likewise with security. Um, if someone else is better at protecting you uh, by and your property by you know just providing a service on the free market, um, that's also going to be something that makes the state look bad. Um, and that's not to say that you know all forms of legal disputes and all forms of security are illegal in the United States because that's clearly not. Uh, true. We have a lot of private security. We have private arb- arbitration, um, but the state is still able to um, maintain that semblance of being the the ultimate decision maker, um, such that uh, those those organizations are still beholden to um, the the higher state. Um, and then, uh, you know, a- as it goes on, he also, you know, th- this was a part that I had to, I had to cut out a lot because I, I would have just gone on um, about this topic, and it seemed um, it was important to get across the, the 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 basic things so we get to the point of, you know, why they want to monopolize and why they go on money. But uh, you know, you can you can write whole you know books on on each of the things that the the state monopolizes and so other things are like communication um uh you know needing to uh uh and that includes stuff like you know roads um and and other forms of of transport and travel um but one of the most important ones is like uh mentioned here is education because you know, the, the state has a natural tendency to want to push public education and make it more difficult um, for people to offer alternatives 
Um, thankfully, that's something that is uh, actively pushed back against, um, especially uh, uh, in in recent times. Um, but uh, the more people who are taught by the state to think what the state wants them to think and be um, to be graded and rewarded and all that based on their acceptance and promotion of uh, state ideology, the better. Um, and so, you know, uh, it's it's a natural place for the state to want to to uh, expand its powers, and, and it does. And I, I think uh, you know, there's I I, I was the uh, unfortunate subject of public school, but I, I can certainly also tell when someone's uh, been to public school. <laughs> I, I too was uh, unfortunate subject of public school. Um, and I, yeah, I don't think I'll be sending my kids there. Um, great, many great points there. It's, I guess, this idea of like programming that's involved, right? There has to be like a culture when you get assimilated into a culture, there's a certain degree of programming that takes place, right? You You adapt to the culture. But the state seems to kind of uh, take that a little bit more forcefully perhaps. And they're trying to actually, uh, you know, promulgate nationalism or, or indoctrinate people or otherwise create this loyalty. You know, one of the first memories I have about going into kindergarten was the, the pledge of allegiance to the flag, you know, just how serious that was and everyone had to learn it and know it and do it every day. So, um, things we we sort of take for granted but they're definitely interesting when when viewed through this this lens of ideology um yeah they also create like a a condition in which it's it's hard to imagine something different mm -hmm, right so yes. so a lot of these state services that we we think as normal and and normal as monopolized today were not necessarily the case in the past and that's things like uh police protection um you know, uh, firefighting, um, you know, education. Um, and so, so people get accustomed to thinking this is the only way, um, you know, the only way that we can do, uh, healthcare is through, you know, state mandated, you know, employer, uh, you know, provision of health insurance and stuff like that. Right. Um, kind of missing out on, you know, what, what used to exist prior to that, um, you know, uh, usurpation of power. Yeah. Yeah. One big one that jumps out to me there is normalizing, you know, positive law or legislation, this idea that we can just, the, the stroke of a legislator's pen can just change law. That was, you know, by fiat effectively, but that's not something that was uh, so prevalent in ancient times, right? Where there's more of a, the, the discovery process, like Steph Stefan Kinsella has a great piece on this. Uh, legislated versus discovered law. I think he he um, bifurcates them. Um, so you go on to write, uh, bringing this back around, but getting back to the piece, but also bringing it around to money. You wrote that modern state power rests on monopolization of a particular industry, namely money and banking. And there's another excerpt from Hoppe here, I believe. The monopolization of money and banking is the ultimate pillar on which the modern state rests. In fact, it has probably become the most cherished instrument for increasing state income. For nowhere else can the state make the connection 
between redistribution dash expenditure and exploitation dash return more directly, quickly, and securely than by monopolizing money and banking. Um, so I think what I'd, I'd like to ask you to maybe try to clarify that for the audience a little bit. Again, some of this writing can be dense. And then comment on this being, the way I view this is like the ultimate honeypot, it seems like, that money is just, especially when it was centralized, we're on a gold standard and we centralized the custody in one place, that becomes an apparently irresistible honeypot for the state to resist uh, bending to its own advantage, whether that's uh, you know outright confiscation or cheap credit or whatever whatever it may be to monopolize the money ultimately. Um, how, how do you how do you view view that uh, in this sense? Yeah, well, so if the the the, the state can engage in all sorts of exploitative acts. Um, but ultimately, you know, money is a, a useful good. You think of what we want it for. We want to be able to have this, this good that we can, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the most liquid good that we can go, you know, spend and get whatever we want. Um, the state also wants that power. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go, you know, and, uh, if you, if you tax, um, but you end up with just a bunch of wheat, well, then you're, you're in the, you're, you then need to have to go and, um, you know, find people who want to trade wheat for the resources that, um, the state wants, or they have to like, you know, target their taxation to very specific, uh, goods that they want. So obviously you'd, you'd want to, uh, exploit by getting your hands on the most liquid goods so that mm -hmm. then in turn the state has access to whatever it needs to um, continue continue its goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's a good... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, I think, I think your next highlight uh, kind of gets into the, the further, you know, kind of the, the nature of this. Yeah. And it's... the why and yeah. how. Um... Yeah, I'll read that here and then I'll make a comment. Um, and this is, from again, from Hoppe. Uh, however, oh no, I'm sorry, this is you writing. However, Hoppe points out that there are barriers to the process of monopolizing money. First, commodity money is produced by the market rather than state fiat. Second, while inflation is not as conspicuous as taxation, it will still be felt and noticed, especially by banks. Therefore, the state is constrained by its commodity money origins and public ideology. And so, it is and so it is also impossible for the state to get away with institutionalized counterfeiting unless it can be combined with redistributive, redistributive measures which are capable of bringing about another favorable change in public opinion. So <laughs> uh, we end up with this strange situation um that when when the state is extracting purchasing power or wealth uh through the counterfeiting of of currency and taxation that you've created like a spigot of stolen liquidity right that whoever can get access to that newly printed money first or those or the, the tax revenues first um they're actually they're effectively able to confiscate wealth from others. So then people start trying to politically position themselves for that while 
at the same time justifying its existence, right? You need to push, you have to, I guess, redistribute some of that wealth back, rebate back perhaps to some of the victims of this theft to get their ideological buy-in to keep the system going. Is that what's being said here? Yes, but uh, I think before that is the important thing to note, which is direct taxation is very costly um, and it it is something that is easily felt. Um, whereas inflation, you know, being able to just counter counterfeit money um, is much more effective on behalf of the state because of the fact that you can just um, you effectively are able to quietly steal small amounts from all holders of that currency. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of doing, you know, show, showing up at your doorstep and stealing a lot, it's more of like a, like an office space where they spent, you know, you, you shave off, you know, penny pennies off the dollar and stuff. Mm -hmm. right. um, but over time, you're obviously uh, amassing an incredible amount of wealth um, from that. And so it's, it's less conspicuous as he says, uh, and um, that makes it uh, more desirable. You get you get something that is more useful as a good on the market um, that you as the state will want to use for your various purposes, while also it's it's easier to get away with uh, because it's not as uh, it's not as brute and it's uh, not as easily felt. Mm. Um, so, but uh, to to what you were saying is yes, like you also see that the state needs to um, basically buy off uh, different entities to get them on board with what they're doing and get them ideologically aligned um, and incentivized, you know, like get the incentives aligned as well um, so that uh, people continue to support the state. So for instance, you know, we have in the United States, um, an incredible amount of people are effectively working for the federal government um, I assume that those people are not all Ron Swanson types where they, you know, secretly hope for the abolition of entire departments, including their own. Instead, uh, I, I have to assume that most people who work for the federal government also have a desire to see the federal government continue. And they might even have, you know, questions about other parts of the federal government, but for their own their own department, they're likely going to, you know, want want that continued job security. And so, um, you know, they're all effectively being paid off by taxation, but even more so um, kind of this inflationary spigot. Um, and yeah, I do believe that's going to have an effect on, on their opinions and, um, you know, kind of working its way out uh, through society. Someone, someone who's friends with someone who works out of, uh, federal agency is likely also not going to have a strong interest in seeing their friend lose a job mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? We, we The corruption of money, how it actually corrupts human action. Uh, they're very closely interlinked and it does seem like this emergent economic phenomena we call money, right? The most liquid good, I think as you were describing it earlier, the most marketable good, it just offers the highest ROI of coercion, I guess. Like if you can just monopolize the money and arrogate yourself the uh, exclusive privilege to counterfeit it or print it and prevent everyone else from doing so that 
there there's just the most bang for your buck i guess um and then but you know the on the ideological side you obviously have to insulate that with something and i think that's what we could argue keynesianism is right this kind of false ideology or pseudoscience that's really just there to promote the counterfeiting of currency and and its institutionalization in the central bank um and you know i i think maybe this is related i saw this recently where you the situation you're describing where you know they're generating revenues they're living off of taxation effectively and how that changes behavior i saw this uh headline recently that twitter this is from the Twitter files, actually, where Elon has been releasing old Twitter information. And apparently Twitter had taken in like $3.5 million from the FBI to censor certain accounts or to do certain actions on behalf of the FBI to certain Twitter accounts. Totally so, normal. Yeah, maybe that's <laughs> an instance, right, of where you get this. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just joking. It's just like it's it's so absurd yes. um, that, that such a thing would, would happen. Um, but and And yet also you know, of, of course this would happen. <laughs> yes. It creates these weird, this weird schism, I guess, is what, how I see it. And I, I, this is probably inspired by Rothbard where he talks about there's, once you have taxation of any kind, you have the taxpayers, the victims and the tax receivers, I think he called them, which are the, the beneficiaries of that, of those stolen proceeds. Right. And so it's interesting to see that schism created in different areas of society. Um, so, yeah, and and you know once once you're able to uh, create this sort of ultimate tax, um, where you're just shaving off the savings of an entire economy, and actually, you know, uh, I, I get into this later, but because this is an international order where you know the dollar is effectively a global reserve currency, you're also shaving, you know, economic wealth from the whole world. Anyone around the world who um, uses the dollar or uses a currency that's pegged to the dollar is effectively having their money um, taxed uh, by by the U.S. government. And so um, that's sort of like monetary imperialism. Yeah. Um, and, and once you have that, uh, you can... This is the, the, the wellspring from which the, the rest of, you know, state action can happen. So, of course, uh, Dr. Ron Paul had a, a very famous quote, I think, from his original um, presidential run, or maybe it was from uh, 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 the revolution. Um, but, uh, you know, he says that it is no coincidence that the uh, century of central banking was the century of total war, mm. uh, because I... You can you can effectively when you have to go door to door to take taxes, you can only get away with so much. But if you can hide things in inflation, um, you can you can scale that operation way more, which means way more money um, can be flowed um, in the direction of the government for uh, you know all all of its projects, all mm -hmm. of its nefarious projects. Yeah, the yeah, there's just no. There's no reconciliation to economic reality when you're just printing money, right? You can produce losses and keep continue operating. And that just, obviously that doesn't work in any other business in the world. So why should it work in the business of statism? Um, and you, getting back to the piece, you, your next section is titled, Gold Didn't Fix This, right? We, 
uh, I guess in many ways, gold was kind of just the best thing we had. And it worked as a pseudo check on government power. And that um, when the, when a gold standard worked and was honored, um, it at least gave people a way to kind of cast a vote of no confidence in the banking system. But obviously that, you know, through both institutional and ideological attack vectors has been eliminated as well. So um, I'll read this one excerpt. This is from, I think Hoppe wrote this. In a first step, the minting of gold must be monopolized by the state. This serves the purpose of psychologically disinternationalizing gold by shifting the emphasis from gold as denominated in universal terms of weight to gold as denominated in terms of fiat labels. And it removes a first important obstacle toward counterfeiting because it gives the state the very institutional means of enriching itself through a systematic process of currency debasement. So it's, it's an interesting uh, war, right? They're, they're sort of um, coming, trying to intermediate people's relationship with this social technology we call money, right? Where people were thinking of it in terms of weight uh, which I think indeed that's where many of the currency names come from, right? Like the pound, the lira, uh, others I think are, are related the, to the weight. dollar, the dollar. Um, and instead you're, you're re rebranding the money, I guess, to be some nationalized label. And then once you get people just, you know, if that label always works, like today we're living in that, right? The U S dollar works, even though it's totally unbacked. And so I guess people have this false confidence um, as a result of this bait and switch tactic, perhaps. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you think of it, the the end game is that uh, you know the the dollar is no longer considered uh, about like twenty three grains of fine gold, mm -hmm. or I think it was about uh, twenty twenty four grams of silver. Or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I forget the exact measurements, but um, people no longer think of the dollar as meaning that, uh, but little pieces of green paper that have uh, the pictures of presidents on them. Um, so they, they've they been, as you said, it was completely disintermediated. Um, and, you know, gold, uh, ultimately, um, and this is one of the reasons gold is so fantastic, um, is that, you know, it's ultimately that just this... Um, you know, chemical compound, uh, not a comp. I mean, it's, it's, a not, it, it's just a, it's a, it's a brick of a single metallic element. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it, it means the same everywhere. You can, you can weigh it everywhere and it will have, have the same weight, um, and, and com chemical composition. It can, you know, you can store it through time. Um, it's, it's highly durable. It's, uh, it's fantastic uh, on on all of these fronts, um, but um, instead of thinking about it in that way, when you move it towards mints, and there's a good reason why you need mints mm -hmm. um, with gold, it does um, you know create the conditions uh, to be able to monopolize those mints, and then you know start stamping um, the, the faces of you know various uh, leaders mm -hmm. on on those instead of. Uh, you know, thinking about the the gold as such. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's excellent, excellent points. Um, it, I, th I find it useful. Maybe this isn't, maybe this is a tenuous analogy, but gold is kind of like the analog open source money, right? This open source technology in the sense that no one knew how to compromise the monetary properties of gold effectively. And, you know, it's open for all to see. There's nothing really hidden about gold. It's just, it is what it is. Um, and it, it's a great point too, that the leaders, once you start minting gold, like there's a, there's a, a need to both centralize custody and to mint coins, right? Coins make for faster, uh, more, uh, less, uh, more trust minimized exchange, right? So it actually increases the intensity of free exchange when you have standardized units. Um, but there's a there's a reason the the smug emperor's face is usually stamped on that coin. And again, I guess they're trying to uh, implement or incept themselves into the public ideology, perhaps by piggybacking off the reputation of the gold, something like that. Um, yeah, although let's, I, I think it's important to step back and think about, you know, go into more of why that minting happens in the first place, mm -hmm. um, to try to suss, suss all this out, which is effectively that, um, like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's very costly to actually identify gold for what it is. So it is this completely open source thing. But it's like needing a supercomputer to be able to do the verification. So mm -hmm. the 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 standard, like the the best way to test gold for its quality is to actually melt it down, measure out how much literal gold was in that, and then recast the gold into um, uh, another coin or bar or whatever to uh, continue on. Now, if all of us had to do that for every single trade we did, um, that would that would be be very difficult for all of us to do. Um, you know, it requires a lot of uh, you know technical knowledge and you know all, all the things that people complain about with Bitcoin, but um, mm -hmm. even more so. Um, and that's not to say you know obviously. Uh, not everyone needs to do that, but part of why that's the case is because due to this fact that it's very difficult to run a full node, there would tend to be mints who specialize in the process of, of creating sort of uh, units of gold, these mm -hmm. coins, it would be, you know, one, one ounce of gold or whatever, um, that can be quickly recognized uh, because it has good branding, because it has actual technical features that are very nice to help assure the person who's receiving a coin that this is a, a genuine gold coin. So for instance, people have seen ridges on the side of coins. Um, and that way you can see that, oh, no one has been, you know, shaving uh, value off the coins. We know that it's it's intact. Um, you're also going to have, you know, elaborate um you know, designs on the coins, partially because it's beautiful, uh, but also because uh, it's, it's more easily identifiable that someone has has tampered with it. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is a phenomenal, you know, advancement to having to, you know, just hope that it's not, you know, uh, tungsten or or some other 
fake uh, thing, but it's, it's also, it is unfortunately this necessary thing that has to happen and it creates these centralized uh, points of failure. Now, as far as like these, these emperors, there is a reason why an emperor um, in a non malicious way would want to, you know, stamp stamp something on there now uh to stamp their own face might be a little uh narcissistic and presumptuous mm-hmm. um but to actually have your own node it makes sense uh from from just a leader's perspective you know uh because you want to know the gold that's going around is valid and you can afford to do it so it's it's almost like the the emperor is just running their own full node and everyone else is kind of, you know, think of it like using SPV um, off off their full node, um, and they're actually providing a service. That's that's a that's a a good for those people. However, the problem with that is not. I mean, th- there there's the problem in requiring the mint in the first place. But once you have that, the problem is it's then an attack vector. So while a good um, emperor. Um, is just you know providing a useful service of creating a more recognizable and verifiable um, unit of gold. Um, a nefarious actor, which as we've described, you know, a state is is has a natural tendency towards. Um, that's an attack vector where you can start um, using that power for um, you know nef- nefarious means. So you can start. Uh, shaving off uh you know you can do coin clipping um you can do coin clipping in uh a way where as coins come back to you um you melt it down you make it more of an alloy so there's other metals so the value of the coin is less and then you remint it and you've effectively earned a a second seniorage so uh, producing the coin in the first place creates a seniorage because uh, the, the coin has a sort of uh, premium on top of the the gold itself for that minting. But then because of that, you can effectively um, get a second seniorage by defrauding uh, the people who are holding um, that coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this is the problem that Hoppe is uh, describing is because of that, you know, sort of branding, on the coins from mints and and thinking of things through mints that is a natural that is a good attack vector for a state um to come in and uh think of the money not in terms of the unit itself but in terms of that mint um Mm. and the services they provide and as they do that um they can get away with more and more um coin clipping and other forms of seniorage by fraud yeah excellent points um just i'll just to define seniorage real quick for anyone that doesn't know the profit from printing money essentially right the fair market value less the production costs yeah yeah and so you're basically saying that the coin clipping or the counterfeiting or the inflation is a second seniorage that's an interesting way to look at it um yeah because you're you effectively yeah because you you take in you take in an ounce of of gold and you melt it down and you make it, you know, 0.9 ounces of gold, but it's still an ounce in weight when people go to, you know, put it on a scale. Um, and that difference of the the costs of the metals versus the actual gold, um, you, you get, you know, basically a, a tenth effectively. Right. Um, yeah. In that example. 
Yeah, it's a great example. And then the you mentioned the ridges on the side of coins. I think it was Isaac Newton that came up with that. It's an anti-counterfeiting technology, right? It's just to, to prevent or at least make obvious the effects of coin clipping. Um, so the, <laughs> By others. By others, <laughs> so of course. You, you can still do it and recast it with those yeah. ridges. Uh, but others don't get to enjoy in the same way that today um, the, the treasury can print as many U.S. dollars as they'd like. Um, right. But if you print a single $20 bill and uh, take it to the store, uh, you will be um, murdered by the police. Exactly. Yeah. Great point. Um, but, I, you know, key there is this it's always this cat and mouse game of like who can get the most counterfeit resistant monetary technology. Um but then once it's once you control it, obviously you can you want to give leave yourself the option to counterfeit as much as possible to make it resistant for others to do so. And I guess that encapsulates kind of the game theoretic process that drove us towards gold over time. That people are just that exact thing, right? People are trying to get the thing that is most resistant to counterfeiting and that that promotes something like gold as a su successful money. Um, and I guess by way of analogy, you could say if, if Bitcoin had ridges, they'd be kind of indestructible, right? Because you can you can run a full node, right? You just can verify the Bitcoin is what it is. And um we know that know that the supply can't be debased effectively. Um, Correct. And so basically, you know, gold, gold, um, and in any good, you know, so some of the economics I, I had in the section sections prior was going into the nature of money and how uncertainty plays into money. So yes. we, we effectively hold money because we're hedging against future uncertainty. Right. Um, we, we want to know, um, that a, we can, we can withstand, uh, various circumstances and be ready for various opportunities, um, by holding a good that we think can most kind of withstand uh, the the dynamism of the market. Like pure and optionality. Yes, yes, exactly. And so gold, gold has a lot of that on many fronts, you know, all the things that we talk about with gold. However, you know, the, the, uh, a saying of gold to make sure that it actually is what we think it is, um, the actual quality of it, um, that still has a lot of uncertainty. And so we turn to mints as a centralized, uh, you know, in, in centralized in the sense that there, there are, there is a specific person that mints, you can have sort of, um, you know, you, you can't have a system of free entry of, of mints, um, but you you still have to you effectively are are putting trust in another organization to do that process for you, and um, as you've centralized that and as you've outsourced that trust, it becomes this attack vector that, while reducing the uncertainty about the quality of the good in one way, introduces other uh, uncertainties requiring uh, uh, you know uh, re related to the. Uh, the actual quantity of the metal, like how much metal is in the coin. And then, as I say, by extension, the real money supply of the, the, the whole economy. So it's already basically impossible to have like a true accounting of how much gold there is in the economy. But then when you start adding in these, these coins that you as an individual can't go, um, 
you know, a say, mm -hmm. it makes it even more difficult because you know that, you know, not only do we not know how much gold there is, we don't know how much like paper gold or in this case, like alloy gold mm -hmm. uh, there is. And so it becomes even more um, difficult to know, to, to think of the, the monetary uh, economy as sort of like an auditable network of, of any kind. And, um, you know, changes, changes in the money supply have ramifications for economic calculations. And so uh, the more that you can, you can alleviate that fact, the better, but, but gold is, it introduces more ways in which we're uncertain about that. Yeah. A lot, a lot of great points there. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> And I give a company some money in case shit happens. <laughs> now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, -A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. I have described, I think this is, there's a great piece on this. 
I think the essay is called uh, The Yield from Money Held Reconsidered, something like that. Um, yes, uh, I, I have that in the um, footnotes, and I highly recommend any Bitcoiner um, and <laughs> any 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 no coiner too, any pre coiner, anyone yeah. uh, go read that essay. Um, it's it's very good, and that's uh, I think Hoppe does a good job of I think identifying the most sort of praxeological approach to what money is. Um, as that hedge against future uncertainty mm -hmm. and uh, kind of uh, looking at that versus uh, hedging against risks and by extension, why people hold cash balances in the first place and why that's a quote productive thing, even though it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it doesn't yield interest. Right. It doesn't yield, um, you know, a, a profit per se, mm -hmm. uh, but it yields certainty about what you can do in the future um, yeah. or certainty that you can withstand the future rather. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've, that's one of the answers to the question, what is money I've recited in the past inspired by that essay is that it's basically an insurance policy on uncertainty. So um, it's just pure option the other way, as we said earlier, it's pure optionality, right? So when you don't know which way things are going to go, you don't know what, events could happen. I mean, the, the optimal strategic response to that is to have more options at your disposal. And almost by definition, that's what money is giving you, right? It's, it's and a call option of sorts on anything the market can bear. Um, and it's also, I guess it's useful thinking about it that way, because you can also connect uncertainty and entropy a little bit. And, you know, that's something even more fundamental that, you know, life itself seems to be like this anti- entropy process of some kind um it, what is gk chesterton's quote a dead thing can go with the stream but only a living thing can swim against it and that's what all, that's what we're doing with all this economy and work like we're trying to um buffer ourselves against the future right through the accumulation of capital and whatnot and so money is this you know as a instrument of pure optionality is obviously very uh indispensable in dealing with uncertainty or, or the horizon of entropy. And it also, I think it also, at least we could infer perhaps the motivations for the existence of a central bank and that it's an institution that's just scalping these options, right? It's just stealing options and externalizing that uncertainty and entropy onto the market economy. Um, and, you know, entropy, central bank externalizing entropy in terms of what price signal distortion, you could probably argue warfare is in there, uh, you know, nationalism, regulation, capital controls, mainstream media. I don't, I don't know how deep that rabbit hole would go, but I've, I've thought that that lens on central banks, on money's relationship with entropy and uncertainty, and and why central banks uh, exist to be kind of useful. Um, if you don't have, do you have any comments on that? Because I do want to read one long excerpt from your your paper. If not, oh, please go ahead. So this is towards the end of that section. Um, you wrote that public ideology in support of this fiat currency system then comes from two angles. First, the fact that the underlying technology is in many ways an improvement in creating a more saleable money, despite the fact that it's otherwise free market potential is now co-opted and monopolized by the state. 
Second, the state can use this as an advantage by crediting themselves as the source of the economic benefits we see from its effects, while papering over the cost of counterfeiting on the economy. Given banks are naturally one of the most powerful institutions in an economy, due to their vital role in facilitating economic activity, they provide yet more legitimacy and resources to the establishment of a public ideology that defends the state's unjust role in the monetary order that allows it to continue. Thus, it is not surprising that few educated people can be expected to have even heard the name Ludwig von Mises during their studies. Um, so is it fair to say that propaganda is necessary to support the existence of a fiat system or or perhaps it's the other way around a fiat system inevitably produces propaganda um what do you what are your thoughts on that i mean i'd guess uh, a little bit of both um but yeah um you know w once again i mean this is not something that would arise in a natural free market um, you know, by definition, uh, or not, sorry, not by definition, but we just know, you know, theoretically, uh, from, from the works of Menger and so on, money is something that arises on the market naturally. Mises even says that, like, um, you know, it can only arise as a, a commodity money first. Mm -hmm. You can't just introduce um, banknotes as <laughs> the original money. Um, so in order to, uh, in order to get people to go along with that, because there, there are all these hidden costs underneath, um, that are, are being kind of, you know, papered over. And I, I use that as a pun, but as they're papered over, you have to be convincing people that, oh no, this is actually the way it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I think propaganda is sort of a, a necessary, um, function of that because you need to continually make people want something that they wouldn't naturally want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before this, I you know, I go I go into the the nature of like money substitutes and the monopolization of uh, substitutes. So basically, as things are more uh, as as mints are centralized, you start then introducing you know not just gold coins but banknotes. Um, that are, you know, certificates that represent a gold coin or some other, you know, amount of gold. And this also has, you know, great value. It makes it much more easy to transport, especially large amounts, especially over, you know, long distances. Um, it lets things, you know, kind of remain in a bank where they can be kept safe. Um, and so this, once again, you know, reduces a lot of uncertainty um, that gold still has because of its difficulty of, of moving and storage, uh, storing. Mm -hmm. um, but as you, as you monopolize mints and you kind of decouple uh, the, the base money, so to speak, with um, if the, the commodity from the sort of what people think is money, and you issue these uh, substitutes, the state can start introducing, you know, things like legal tender laws um, such that people have to use. So not only are banknotes a thing that are offered because they they provide some value, but you must use um, those paper notes. And as you do that, you can start, you know, uh, cartelizing 
the banking industry and um, soon you know uh, the money becomes completely decoupled uh, altogether and that's that's the world we exist in now. Um, what we have and what we've had for the past 50 years is not something that would ever arise on the market. Um, it, it, it simply like it, it just it wouldn't. I mean, we can get into all of the uh, things, uh, the the theory behind that. But, um, you know, I'd recommend Holzman's, uh, you know, ethics of money uh, production um, to, to get into topics like that. But once you've done that, you have to convince people, oh, no, this is totally how money works. Mm. Trust me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. A lot, of, a lot of great points there. Um, and yeah, you mentioned theoretically Minger's, uh, what on the origins of money, I think is his piece describing mm -hmm. how uh, money emerges naturally on the free market as an, as an economic phenomenon, not a state dictate or decree and we've also i would argue there's um uh nothing by title comes to mind but i've read a number of um observations of things becoming monetized right where you actually can study certain cultures across history even in like prison settings obviously something like cigarettes becomes a currency so um there's definitely i guess some evidence to support that that theoretical perspective of Minger, um, much more than there is to say supporting statist money. Um, and there's also a deeper relationship here, I think. So as we said earlier, um, propaganda and uh, currency counterfeiting or, or central banking, that some very intertwined, let's say, but it also seems to be intertwined with war, right? Just military uh, violence. And I'll read an excerpt here. I think this is, this is Hoppe, Hoppe's writing. On the one hand, any step in the direction of an international counterfeiting cartel is bound to fail if it is not complemented by the establishment of military dominance and hierarchy. External and internal economic pressures would tend to burst the cartel. With military superiority, however, an inflation cartel becomes possible. On the other hand, once military dominance has made such a cartel possible, the dominant state can actually expand its exploitative power over other territories without further war and conquest. In fact, the international cartelization of counterfeiting allows the dominant state to pursue through more sophisticated, i.e. less visible means, what war and conquest alone might not be able to achieve. So I think this is describing the monetary imperialism that you described earlier. Yes, yes. So, you know, basically, if people notice that the state is, uh, you know, stealing their money uh, to a degree that they uh, find insufferable, uh, they can just leave. They can... Um, they can they can find other other ways of doing things uh go to go to other places um and you can have competitive states competitive territories um but that's unacceptable to the organization that's wanting to exploit because they don't want to lose on their revenues and so um military conquest and and power um basically brute force can be used to um cut off 
the capacity to be able to escape um, that that exploitation. Um, what he's saying there is, you know, once you can expand this far enough, so uh, in terms of our modern, you know, kind of fiat world order, this is, you know, post post World War II, we got bread and woods, and the dollar was, you know, became more the the a sort of global currency, and then by, uh, you know, decades later, that that had been, you know, fully. Uh, established, you know, we live in a, a dollar world. Um, with that goes into what I was saying about how, you know, when, when the U.S. prints more money, they can shave savings off not just American citizens, but literally anyone who uh, uses the U.S. dollar in some capacity. Um, and uh, we also see this. It's not it's not just the U.S. that does this. Uh, you know, there's there's been great articles uh, from like, you know, Alex Gladstein on the uh, colonial Frank. And that's effectively the same thing, um, which itself is somewhat ironic because Charles de Gaulle had a famous speech in it's like 1965 or so about exorbitant privilege. The idea that the United States was able to to do this, um, like have have that uh, sort of monetary privilege, so to speak, thanks to uh, uh, you know the the dominant role of the U.S. dollar. Um, so it is rather ironic that, uh, you know, France in turn does this, uh, to others as well. Um, but, th but that, yeah, that's, that's a good way to, to expand. Um, it, it wasn't in this article, um, but in the Hoppe article, he actually describes this interesting phenomenon that almost seems non-intuitive at first, which is that a state will often be like, uh, like this it makes sense that they would be actually rather liberal in domestic terms um, while having more um, warlike tendencies in external terms uh, to be able to, you know, increase the uh, territory of people who are, uh, you know, under, under its monetary sphere. And as that happens, then they can just start, you know, shaving money off them. Mm. So I, I I highly recommend people read the the whole Hapa essay because like I said I only I only got to touch a little bit of it but I think there's um, a lot to glean from uh, you know all all the different uh, dynamics he describes. Yeah, well said. Um, all right, so I'll read a couple more excerpts here. Um, we're now kind of getting into the. Talk, this is the under the subheading Bitcoin fixes this, and I'll I'll read two excerpts here. You wrote that a Bitcoin full node is a certainty machine. When a user runs a full node, they are granted a level of certainty about a monetary network that no human had prior to Bitcoin's existence. Every other monetary technology is riddled with uncertainties. Bitcoin fixes this. And then a little further down, you wrote, sort of elaborating on that, that as pure software and information, innovative storage methods can be adopted. This is in regards to Bitcoin. Uh, while any other incumbent currency requires placing units in a centralized vault or ledger, Bitcoin full nodes recognize the use of multi-signature transactions. 
allowing for decentralized storage that can be that can even be multi-jurisdictional. Keys can also be stored in a user's own memory, allowing storage to not require a physical location, which can be useful as a hedge against political uncertainty. Bitcoin also does not require a bank vault to be opened in order to deposit more funds. Um, so these are all, this is very cool, like kind of unique aspects um, on Bitcoin as well. I mean, uh, specifically the bank vault, I hadn't actually thought about that. That being a source of risk or uncertainty with physical money is just the fact that you have to open the vault. <laughs> and with Bitcoin, um, you can just send an address, right? Um, yeah, similarly, people, <laughs> you know, uh, don't necessarily think about the power of the actual broadcasting of a Bitcoin transaction, where if we if we go back, I mean, you know, I, I live in Texas, I'm from Texas, um, and my family has been here a long time. And historically, when you think about the American West, you know, it's all stories of, you know, highway robbery and, uh, you know, people people stealing from stagecoaches, you know, there's all kinds of gold and, and other goods on it. The actual transportation of goods is a is a very, you know, dangerous activity. Um, and in a even even without bad actors, you know, we have stories of shipwrecks, you know, and how much how much gold is lying at the bottom of the ocean uh, because it was it was going on a, a ship that you know ran into unfortunate natural disasters or or such mm. meanwhile when you send a bitcoin transaction you know the dangerous part is taking out your keys to actually sign it um which we have all kinds of tools to help us you know minimize the risks of doing such you know like with hardware wallets and 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 other tools and when you do that, you're encapsulating that uh, Bitcoin transaction in, uh, you know, a a digital signature that will never be uh, tampered with. It can't be tampered with. Um, and so the actual transportation, like when you broadcast it, it could take time. It could sit in the mempool for a while. Um, but as long as it's, you know, it's been signed, uh, there's nothing people can do with it. You know, there's no there's no man in the middle attack possible like there is um, with other uh, with other monetary technologies. And you know, this is just you know these these are two of of many ways in which Bitcoin is able to reduce the uncertainty of of just operating with the money that was never possible um, prior. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's very much what this section Bitcoin fixes this about is about. We look at, you know, that that process that Hoppe describes that we we covered a little bit in this about how mm -hmm. money is monopolized, where, you know, you have to use you, you centralize on mints, you monopolize the mints, you start forcing people to use more and more money substitutes, um, you create a central bank. Um, and legal tender laws that force people to use these money substitutes, which then they can, you know, print ad infinitum. Uh, but with Bitcoin, uh, because of the techno technological advancements that it's made um, through public key cryptography and peer-to-peer -peer networking, hash functions, etc., we're able to create a system that alleviates all of these uncertainties um, in in 
orders of magnitude better than anything we've we've had before. And it all comes around to people being able to hold their own keys and importantly, run their own nodes. So mm -hmm. running your own node is the way to get around all of the concerns about minting and money substitutes because you are the mint. Um, you are uh, a saying every little bit of Bitcoin that comes through your system. You're, you're auditing every Bitcoin transaction against the network as a whole to make sure no one was cheating uh, the system and that the money you received is totally valid so that you're not giving uh, something up for it. Um, you know, but you're not being defrauded when you're, you're trading for that Bitcoin. And likewise, you know, when you go to spend it, you also know that you hadn't been previously defrauded. So you're not defrauding someone on accident, um, which is obviously also a problem when, when you have counterfeit. So because of this, you know, the Bitcoin full node is this incredible device this incredible tool that lets us uh, act on an individual level independently um, with the network, uh, like I said, as, as a way to reduce uncertainty better than we have ever been able to before on, on basically every dimension that we look at from, from time um, uh, in terms of how quickly we can settle the transactions mm -hmm. and uh, the duration uh, through which we can be, you know, certain about its uh, usefulness. Um, gold is, is frankly, it's, it is good on on time in many ways, you know, because of its durability. But mm -hmm. you know, I go into I go into more details in the article <laughs> uh, about all, all the ways in which it does that. But you know, time, space, um, you know, being able to settle as as fast with your next door neighbor, as with someone on the other side of the planet, um, as well as scale, um, where the a Bitcoin transaction and the verification of a transaction um, scale just as well with uh, very large amounts as very small amounts. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, this is just, uh, it's, it's a technological innovation that, uh, you know, really, really takes us to the next level um, with, with money and all that that unlocks for an economy. Yeah. Again, a lot of good points there. It, it's somewhat intuitive if we're conceiving of money as an instrument for dealing with uncertainty that the, you know, it's almost intuitive to me, at least that if you think about it that way, that the money with the most certainty uh, would win, right? That would be the best tool for the job if it's intended to deal with uncertainty. And, you know, you look at something like Bitcoin that we can, you can audit the total supply, uh, the network uptime, you know, it's basically always up. Um, I forget the numbers on Bitcoin's actual network uptime, but it's 99.99%. Um, you know, you get this verification of final settlement after, you know, so many confirmations. So the, the, you get all these very concrete certainties that we don't have in really any other monetary network um, even gold, right. With the kind of physical final settlement of gold, you still, you couldn't audit the total supply of gold. I think what you mentioned in the piece. So there's this unparalleled level of certainty possible with Bitcoin that is possible with no other monetary network. Um, and it also, you know, I guess going further, it's like when we consider the implications of Bitcoin that it would actually, if it does, you know, 
disrupt the central bank or, or separate money and state, that in the long run, it would actually reduce the uncertainty in the world, right? In terms of, of monetary debasement, counterfeiting, warfare, things like this. Like it seems to suck a lot of uh, negative uncertainty out in that sense. Um, uh, do you have any comments about that? Or I would, if not, I'll go read another long excerpt here. No, I think you covered it well. Great, thank you. So you write a little further down, running a full node allows a user to be their own bank so that no third party bank issuing notes is inherently necessary, preventing any issue of counterfeit or double spending to occur unless a person willfully decides to take on counterparty risk. Any introduction of a money substitute, for instance, on an exchange cannot affect the money at a systemic level, but only localized to users of that substitute. Insofar as one might consider a second layer, such as lightning a money substitute, a user can maintain their own full node and each unit is cryptographically linked to real base money, further ensuring that every transaction is valid according to their Bitcoin full nodes bookkeeping. With the higher expectations of independently verifiable settlement of the base money and certain money substitutes, users can have much higher expectations and more stringent demands of third-party services and more tools to identify bad behavior to be swiftly corrected in the market process. It's just amazing to me how much certainty we can glean from Bitcoin just by running a full node without intermediaries, right? It's, it's direct verification. Um, and, you know, when we look at the analog world, we have all these layers of intermediaries kind of largely intended to serve that purpose, right? To have some um, checks and balances or cross-checking um, of bookkeeping and things like this, uh, segregation of duties, et cetera. But all, we've, we've taken all of those uh, are a lot of the verification that we've had to create these elaborate systems to obtain and Satoshi's given it to us in a much more economic uh, mode or, or modality, I guess you might say. Yeah, it's uh, Bitcoin is, is simply better engineered money. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, running, running a full node, uh, I, I go into some of the technical details and I'll, I don't want to bore the listeners with all of that but effectively you are when you're running a full node you're deciding on the rules of the network that you want to join and according to those rules you're able to check that every transaction that comes through follows them exactly bit by bit um every every piece of math perfectly adds up um and the same with every block and so you know that every step of the way, every 10 minutes, every transaction, you can make sure that everything is going accordingly, uh, like according to the exact rules, uh, emphasis on exact, um, that, that you choose. Um, and there's simply no, no room for, uh, for getting around that. And I think, you know, like I said here, uh, you know, Lightning, some might consider, you know, uh, a lightning transaction as sort of money substitute, but you can do the math to link every lightning transaction to the Bitcoin network because every every lightning transaction is technically a valid Bitcoin transaction that just hasn't been broadcast yet. Um, and so you 
it all still adds up exactly and you can you can trace it to know that it is it is real um and it is it is backed by an actual bitcoin uh on the blockchain um and so you can do the, this full independent bookkeeping um you are effectively you know a your own central bank and you're a better better central bank than any other central bank uh, except for the ability to um, inflate the money supply, and um, but you know, I, I would argue that we shouldn't have that, um, and Bitcoin doesn't allow that. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything more on on that in particular. Yeah, it's um, it's incredible, to say the least. Uh, we're all struggling, I guess, to get our head around its implications. Um, I'll read one more excerpt here towards the end uh, of that segment you wrote that by using a full node a user reduces what information must be shared in order to interface with the network and thus can have less uncertainty about certain information being released publicly that can be used against them by bad actors um, and this is in re regard to bitcoin's network operating pseudonymously uh, and you go on to write, Bitcoin's novel and groundbreaking, groundbreaking architecture designed to allow independent ownership and verification completely nullifies the key problems that led to gold centralization. Bitcoin fixed the money, and now it's simply up to individuals to go figure this out. What a just powerful line there. Um, we're, we're often saying, you know, Bitcoin fixes this and fixes that, but it's a it's a great point that it it already exists as money, right? It's already kind of fixed the money in a way. It's just a matter of, um, I guess, more time, right? Just more more fiat currencies failing, or more people feeling the pain of of taxation, inflation, regulation, etc. Uh, before more purchasing power moves into this. Um, symmetrical network right or just rules fair rules unchangeable rules um i just think it's, it's very very powerful way you put that yeah so you know i i would push back that uh i don't think that it, it necessarily has to be through pain um that people mm -hmm. learn although that that is a very common uh way that people learn um mm -hmm. but also just as people naturally need you know they they uh want to prepare for a future uh, you know Without central banks, we still need money. We we still have um, the need for a, a hedge against future uncertainty. In fact, I would argue we'd have you know higher cash balance. We'd have we'd have more money, uh, so to speak, yeah. um, in in that world. And in terms of uh, the you know our cash balances rather than um, actual units. Um, so. You know, people are also we're, we're watching right now. Um, lightning is just exploding, and we're seeing all kinds of amazing innovation. You know, people could also you know just want to engage with uh, communication platforms in a in a new way, and they find that um, it uses you know lightning payments um, to get certain actions done. Um, and people just generally just you know want a place to put their savings. Um, you know, and they they extrapolate out time enough and they think that you know they they see uh the the potential bitcoin has in particular so i d i do just like to push back on um having too much of a, a negative point of view i don't think that you know the world needs to be crumbling down for bitcoin to win um 
quite the contrary. Uh, the point of Bitcoin here is that it's such a good innovation that it almost seems inescapable. Even even if we had a gold standard, uh, Bitcoin would still be um, infinitely better. I don't want to say infinitely. That's uh, mm. but it would be orders of magnitude better. Um, you know, especially in today for paying for things online, being able to do international settlements, um, you know, all, all of these things, um, Bitcoin would still um, simply be better at, and I think would would win out and might be on a different timeline. Um, but I think it would ultimately serve the functions of money um, much, um, much better. And uh, part of that's just, you know, uh, a little bit above, I talk about how, you know, a Bitcoin full node is something that's, you know, expected to be able to operate in a bunker. Um, Bitcoin is so uh, focused on backwards compatibility and security and being able to properly sync with the network um, that it really is just the best engineering um, that I think we've come up with uh, for money and are like to for quite some time um, because everything about it is designed to be able to overcome all of the different uncertainties. So the 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 pain you feel you're, you're describing, some of it could be like we we see these sort of punctuated events, you know, whether it's like you know truckers in Canada or uh, the the Lebanese currency collapsing. Mm -hmm. Those are some very, like I said, like punctuated um, instances where people feel pain about um, where their current monetary needs. Um, for over overcoming a certain kind of uncertainty weren't being covered. Um, but I think that those uncertainties just permeate a lot of our economic uh, decision-making these days. Mm. And Bitcoin, because it's covering all of this ground, it's not just fixing one thing, it's fixing everything about money, um, that people will find their way to Bitcoin um, for, you know, just needing a better place to put their savings or because they're trying to get around some some major thing. And Bitcoin sets itself up um, to be able to take on all of those possible uncertainties. And it's mm. because of that fact that it is such a great money. Um, and just being able to address, you know, one of those is, is not going to be enough. Um, you know, just simply having um, a way to send a uh, small... Uh, send like a micropayment, that's, you know, whatever. It's when you can do that combined with a network that also has all of this, you know, 21 million fixed supply, et cetera, et cetera. That's when you can have um, a money that the the economy as a whole would uh, demand to, you know, <laughs> absorb itself into, right. be subsumed by. Yeah, quite simply the best tool for the job we've ever had. Um, and I, I will agree with you, actually, people don't have to learn through the pain. Uh, it reminds me of that quote that if you learn from other people's mistakes, it's cheaper, basically, right? It's a good <laughs> idea to learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah, um, I, I will admit, obviously, a lot of people like learning the uh, hard way, but yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've liked it, but it does seem <laughs> that there's been a time or two where I've had to do it. Um, and yeah, this... Yeah, that's I guess that's kind of the the motivation behind this show and discussion in general is hoping hopefully helping people learn through other people's pain 
and through study, right? Rather than, I guess, the pain of study versus the pain of expropriation, let's say. Um, yeah, and that's and that's certainly a big part of you know what I what I'm trying to do here is you know I want to be able to build a stronger theoretical framework for understanding Bitcoin because mm -hmm. the better that we can do that um, for those who are willing to go through that process, uh, the more that they can avoid um, having to make uh, poor decisions and bear the costs of them. Yeah, well said. Um, the piece is great, Michael. Honestly, it goes on. Uh, there's many more sections here. We, I don't think, can get through all of it today. I have a lot of highlights, as you've seen in the PDF I shared with you. Um, but maybe to wrap up, I would like to read one more excerpt here towards the end and just hear uh, what you have to say about it. You wrote that with, with no more capacity for double spending and counterfeiting, the state's monopoly over money will cease to be as no one will have demand for their services. Without their most profitable means of redistributing wealth, this will create more productivity in the economy by siphoning fewer resources away from productive ventures. This growth will be compounded by the fact that the same resources are not being redistributed towards people and institutions who use those resources to create ideological support for the redistribution itself. Military conquest will be diminished as the cost of war must be paid for directly and monetary imperialism will have no purpose as no people will be willing to adopt a shitcoin. <laughs> um, really well-written stuff um, and a, a very bright orange future, I think, uh, that you've painted here. Um, are there any kind of closing thoughts you'd like to share with us uh, on this particular excerpt? Yeah, well, you know, it was uh, an interesting realization. You know, people people like to talk about um, how, you know, you earn an income, you get taxed. Hmm. You uh, try, you you uh, just hold that money, it gets inflated away. You get taxed versus inflation. You put it into, um, you know, some some harder asset that can. Um, kind of make returns greater than investment uh, inflation, uh, you get capital gains tax and so on and so forth. Every every place along the way, someone is there to take your money. Mm -hmm. um, not someone being, you know, an, an agent of, of the government. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> the further realization was that's the side of the equation of the money being taken but that money is also used for things. That money uh, goes to, um, as as we described, it's it's um, you know the government agents themselves. It goes towards propagating an ideolo ideology for it. Um, it goes towards the the friends uh, of the the money printers, uh, just to you know give their enterprises a a competitive or a non-competitive advantage um and so on and so forth and part of that that money that's stolen from you is then used effectively to further entrench you in a system um that keeps siphoning off more and more resources from you so like it's yet another dimension of how you know they just more salt is being rubbed on more wounds and um yeah, that that was just like an interesting realization, and and 
um, to understand that, you know, that side of it too, like we, we think of the side of money not being taken from us as going away, mm-hmm. but we should also consider what are the ramifications of that no longer being, uh, th- those, those funds no longer being available to the government to further use against us. So, uh, to, to that end, I think that the economy, you know, the, the growth potential of the economy is not, is, is compounded like I said, even further by that. And I think that's, uh, that, to me, that was just like a very profound revel- uh, you know, revelation, um, you know, just kind of on thinking. And I'm not the first one to, to, to say that, but just thinking on it really made me uh, consider how wonderful it is to have money that uh, puts this uh, to an end. And uh, yeah. Yeah, really fantastic. Uh, fix the money, fix the world, as we all keep saying. Um, and as you were saying that, I was thinking about the seen versus the unseen. It's like we we see the taxation, right? Or we, I guess, at least um, consider the loss of purchasing power. But there's this unseen um, usurped human flourishing perhaps or there's so much more that we could be doing with that money had it not been stolen and you know used to fund all the things you just mentioned Um, yeah it's like the the unseen unseen yes the unseen unseen um and i guess that is the bright orange future that we're all kind of working towards yeah so uh, you know to, to round that out you know bitcoin has created a and a seemingly ideal monetary technology that that allows all of us naturally to um, tend towards wanting to take a sort of uh, level of self sovereignty that suits us, which I think over time becomes you know more and more in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and as that happens, it increases uh, Bitcoin's own marketability by just being a more liquid and usable good, you know, uh, Bitcoin, people don't like to think about the price, but at the same time, a, um, you know, a $10,000 Bitcoin, I, I don't, I guess right now, well, you know, 16, $17,000 Bitcoin is, it's, it's more valuable, more useful than a thousand dollar Bitcoin, because it means each, each Bitcoin transaction can effectuate more economic activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, as that grows and it becomes more useful, it also encourages people to defend Bitcoin more because they become more entrenched, not in supporting the public ideology of fiat, but by necessity, by, because of their own sort of savings and investments in Bitcoin and a Bitcoin economy, that same ideological drive uh, gets gets pointed towards wanting to defend Bitcoin. And meanwhile, the engineering of Bitcoin is such that it's not just solving, you know, one kind of double spending and counterfeiting, but all double spending and counterfeiting, mm-hmm. which means that it protects us not only from petty um, criminals, but also from any uh, sized person or institution that which wishes to um commit you know criminal monetary activities against us mm. and so because of that um i think uh as as the world continues adopt to adopt bitcoin to um for for people to uh use 
their own keys and their own nodes to protect their money. And uh, I should mention that I don't mean that I, I believe everyone can and will um, do this. Um, but the more that that occurs, the yet even more defense Bitcoin has such that uh, I think Bitcoin uh, will be able to sustain itself well into the future, um, thus creating even more certainty about where we can think about uh, putting our savings uh, for our future, our children's future, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I think that uh, Bitcoin, as I say, you know, it, it frees us from the uh, fiat trap um, and true, you know, like you say, economic flourishing um, and and real uh, a, a potential for economic growth like never before uh, awaits us. Yeah, great job, man. It's a really well-written piece. I encourage everyone to check it out. We will link to it in the show notes. Um, with that, could you please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Sure. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Bitstein. Um, I They can read more writings. This inspired me to want to do more writing. So I will be doing more writing at um, on Substack um, at bitstein.substack.com. Uh, people can also visit uh, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute um, at nakamotoinstitute.org. And every once in a while, they can hear a new episode of the Noted Bitcoin podcast, um, which they can also find on, you know, whatever podcast app they use. Yeah, all great resources. Um, uh, the Nakamoto Institute was very instrumental for me early on. So I'm glad you guys do that. Uh, Michael, thank you again for doing this. This is a great piece of work. Yeah, thank you.